I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? Nick Konis is one of Sean's favorite thinkers and people to talk with. And after listening to this conversation, you will know why. He is the founder and CEO of Talk, which is a system for managing reservations and takeout orders and was recently acquired by Squarespace. He brings domain expertise and 20 plus years of founders level entrepreneurial experiences across several industries. Nick spent a decade as a founding partner in a proprietary derivatives trading firm. He began investing in internet startups in 1996. Nick now co-owns the Alinea Group, which he co-founded in 2004, which has achieved five restaurants, 350 plus employees, four Michelin stars, 12 James Beard Awards, and two award-winning books. To top it all off, Alinea was named the best restaurant in the U.S. five times. Nick was originally on episode number 119 of the podcast, where he and Sean cover a bit of Nick's backstory, starting his restaurant, Alinea, his decision-making framework, and creative processes. So check that out for more info. Enjoy. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I have ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free, and even better, when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who were like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. 
So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to eightsleep.com forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's eightsleep.com forward slash Sean. Nick, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am doing really well. So during our last conversation, one of, one of the things that came up is you love discovering new things. And one of the questions you love or love is, when's the last time in your life you felt like something was new? So I'm wondering, have you come across anything, let's just call it the last year, that it, it just felt like a new experience for you with something so different? I think we all did, right? I mean, the first thing, I, I'm going to go with like a, a, a product and an experience. And obviously, um, the COVID experience was new for all of us. And it was, it's too soon to talk about it in some ways, but it was very, very interesting that when it became evident that there would be lockdowns and whatnot, um, I, I remember I, we sat down, my wife and I sat down one evening and went like we were watching the news and we were like, wow, this is just surreal. And we looked at each other and we we're like, let's embrace this. Hmm. Like this could get very stifling very fast. So let's figure out ways of being productive in our house. Let's figure out ways of dealing with each other where we're not, <laughs> we're the only people we're going to see and all that. And um, I will say that like, for both of us, it was a really positive experience. I'm not saying that it was a desired experience. Obviously it's terrible. COVID was terrible, but we chose to sort of dive into to new things and new experiences within the constraints we had. And sometimes when you're constrained, that's when, you know, you're most creative. And so, uh, I, I, you know, we got a lot done in the last year. And so that was, a really unique experience and one I hope we don't have to do continually or again, I guess, but um, I, I can't say that it was bad, like for, for our family or for ourselves. Um, it was terrible for society and, and for the economy and for all of that. But um, we, we chose to embrace that limitation and, and got a lot done. You mentioned a product, believe me, I will dive back, back oh, into this, but I, I would yeah, love to know yeah, the product. Yeah. So this is, this is, so, um, I got an email from a friend saying, I'm sending you some, some meat from Maui. And that was all it said. And I was like, eh, like I get, I get a million food products. Right. I mean, like with, because of Alinea and talk and whatnot, um, it's, I'm very fortunate that purveyors from all over the world send me interesting stuff. And the reality is, is that most of it isn't terribly unique, you know, some new salt or something like that. Um, I got a box of, of venison from Maui and watched the video Maui Nui venison and was instantly like, wow, it's, it's a USDA certified product that is actually wild. Um, and this guy, Jake Muse took 10 years to get all that done and certified. And there's 50,000 axis deer on Maui, just decimating ranches and farms and the environment. So it's, 
ecologically sustainable to harvest these animals. But what's really amazing is because they're wild and they eat the vegetation of Maui, which is like, you know, fertile soil, everything like that. It was mind-blowingly good. So much so that even though I didn't know the producer or the guy or anything about him other than the video on his website, I emailed him and said, that's one of the greatest products I've ever had. Immediately had some shipped to Alinea. It was on the menu two weeks later. And, um, and now I'm an investor in, the, in his business. Um, that doesn't happen very often. That's why I say it's a hair bit self-serving. But the reality is, is that that product came to me six months ago, eight months ago. And I was instantly in awe of, of the quality and the mission that he put together, which is really amazing. You've got me salivating over here for the last probably year, year and a half. I've heard about just how delicious Axis deer are. I have not tried it yet. So now without a doubt, jumping on the website, going to order some here. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful place. Well, one of the things you brought up a minute ago around the the constraints that COVID put on us, and then those constraints, they breed creativity. I'm wondering, knowing that, I mean, you're such a creative person. We're going to talk a lot about creativity. Is there anything you do in your own environment to add on additional constraints to help bring out some more of that creative nature of you? You know, I, I think one of the, the mind tricks I play on myself um, is that once I feel like something should be done, I sort of announce it to friends, family, publicly, whatever it may be, because then I feel a greater sense of, of obligation or even like a social contract to deliver it. Um, and so, like, you know, when, when I was first going to do talk, and I wanted to force the function of having to, you know, sell tickets to a restaurant in 2010. Um, when we announced the restaurant, we did a little movie trailer for it that I did with Martin Kastner. And it said, tickets, yes, tickets on sale soon. And I had no idea how I was going to make that happen. <laughs> like, you know, that was like the opening was nine months away or something like that. So I knew I had nine months to do it. But I would never have opened without doing it. And so I forced myself by announcing it publicly to finish the job. And, you know, I, I think that's true. Like people go on diets, sometimes do that, you know, or, or workout programs or whatnot. And it's just a way of keeping yourself accountable, um, at least for me, because I don't want to tell you, like if I told you on this podcast, yes, you know, I'm working on this project and six months from now it's going to launch, I would feel a sense of obligation to do that. These, these Jedi mind tricks to help you get going. Is that something you've always done throughout your life? Just just built in these these mechanisms to help force you to develop creativity or even around entrepreneurship and business? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was always the kid that wanted to, to do well, like even in school and whatnot, um, probably because I felt like my parents didn't have the same opportunities. So I felt a sense of obligation to you know, excel, try my hardest, do well, all of that. And that probably lingers on with me, you know, into my adult life. Like I, I definitely, my sense of obligation has shifted from myself to my employees and to other people who are supported by the businesses we create. Um, but it's definitely the case where if you have a sense of obligation, you, you tend to get things done. And the creativity is just like, when you're resource constrained, you kind of go, oh, yeah, figure some shit out here. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, don't, I, think, I think that's all creativity is. It's just like, it's iteration and, you know, it's a result that ends up being surprising even to you, right? 
No, absolutely. I, I find that really intriguing. You you mentioned that shift for 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 me to the, the people that work for me. I, I'm wondering, like, when did this shift happen, right? Because you started being in Chicago, derivatives trader, which is, is much like a zero sum game, where all of a sudden now you're like spreading all this positivity towards other people with the restaurant, great meals. How does that transition happen for you? For me, it happens as you as you as you get employees and you realize that as a business grows, you know, it's one thing if you have five or 10 people as, as employees and you know them all personally, there's a sense of mutual obligation there and whatnot. But, but now with having hundreds and hundreds of employees and literally thousands over a 15 or 20 year period, many of whom have gone on to do other interesting things, you end up um, realizing that the decisions that you make actually affect hundreds of families and that they don't always have insights into, no, even if you have the best intentions of the world, it's impossible to adequately communicate all of, all of you know, the reasons why something is being done. Uh, one of my great frustrations you know, is that, and I'm looking at Twitter less and less because of it, is that you, you do things in your business and then somebody picks apart one little piece, even if it's another business owner, or someone who has a, a, you know, an agenda for their particular business or their particular life, their particular city. And they don't realize that, hey, you know, first and foremost, there's 300 employees. And even if you don't understand why I'm making the decision that it benefits them, and even if you think it doesn't benefit them, you have very little of the information of what's going on here. So, you know, I think that shift is just a sense of responsibility. Um, it's like, it's no different honestly, then if you become a parent, everyone says like you become a parent and, and all of a sudden you, you have this child and instantaneously your priorities shift. I think with growing a business, that shift happens more slowly. It's not like you birth a business and go, holy cow, like, you know, but eventually you wake up one day and you go, oh my gosh, I have like this, this profound sense of responsibility, not only to our clients, but, but even more so to the people who, who, decided willfully to, to join this group of people and work on something. So um, that's about creating new opportunities for them as much as it's for yourself. Yeah, I love the point you, you bring up of having like the complete encapsulation of what this business is. And so many people only see these small subsects and they, they don't understand the complete picture. Um, and as the leader of that business- it, I, see, I see the press do that all the time where they call a business leader and they get their, their headline, you know, their headline statement or their headline thought or initiative or whatever. And then they don't understand more broadly, like, Oh, well that's performative because it actually isn't going to do anything to, for the employees or the, or the customers or yeah, that, that looks good for the industry, but really like it will never be implemented widely. And so I see that on a daily basis. And it, I, I suppose like if you're not a business owner, if you don't have skin in the game, you can't understand what that's what that's like. Like, so if you're just a reporter, you know, for even a you know prestige, you know, magazine or newspaper or something like that, um, if you don't own that newspaper, you have no idea what what a biz, small business owner is going through. So um, it's it's tricky, you know, and I, I you know, you, you can't let it frustrate you, but it, it is tricky. What part of running the business do you enjoy the most? Like, what what just lights you up inside? You know, it's always about creating something that is 
newer novel, right? Which happens very infrequently. You know, I mean, if you think about it, like if you, if you are creating a, a new restaurant, we were building Alinea and we opened, like the minute we opened was very cathartic, but probably wasn't until like the end of year one where I felt like, hey, we've created something, a new experience here, a very novel experience. Like it takes a long time to do that. And then you might go four or five years before you transform something again enough to do that. I will say that like the very first day we, I turned on the predecessor to talk and at first it broke and then we kind of fixed it and then it started running. The minute I saw that people were actually prepaying for a reservation at next restaurant in 2011, um, I got on the phone, walked around the block and said, it's going to take 20 years, but this is going to change the way people buy things in the future. Like dynamic and variable pricing in real time for service oriented businesses is an inevitability. It has nothing to do with me or or talk or anything. It's just like, of course, that's the way it should be. But that realization that, Oh, like very few people realize this. It seems inevitable. It's almost like discovering a new mathematical axiom or something like that. And then Oh, I actually bothered to build enough of it to try it and test this little thing that already exists in the universe. Like I can measure, it's like if you can measure something that exists like a radio frequency or something like that. And all of a sudden you go, Oh, I'm tuned into that. And then you start looking around and it's like, Oh, like that thing is everywhere, but I never had a way of measuring it before. So for me, that can be a piece of music or it could be, uh, you know, a piece of software. And they, they end up feeling very much the same over time, you know, um, as you, as you kind of get a couple of these little self discoveries and try to get them out into the world. Um, it's just, it's just a normal process. Like if, if you read other people about like how they, they've built or discovered things or whatnot, like they're like, Oh, it was there all along. I'm just happened to tune into it. And I never really understood that. Um, you know, it's like, I like to write music occasionally and I'm terrible at it. And I haven't figured out how to tune into that just yet. Um, but if you listen to like great songwriters, they understand that process of tuning into whatever it may be. And they say afterwards, like, oh yeah, it was like that melody was there all along. I just kind of picked it out. And now, of course that's not true, but it feels that way. So that to me is the exciting part of creating anything. I'm thinking about just that mindset overall. It almost seems like you're extremely good at that delayed gratification. So, so for you, is it really like that intellectual stimulation is, is all throughout the process? Uh, I, I guess I'm wondering like what, when the end moment comes, when the business is launched, when you get, Oh, it's, it, that's yeah. And, and the weird part is that that's the worst part. It's almost like this huge like, letdown, right? Like you, you, yeah, I, it, well, you know, it's like, I always set goals that seem pretty, pretty broad. I kind of work with the end in mind and work backwards. Do you have like an example of what that might look like? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that, um, in the first year I was trading, uh, as a, as a floor trader. Now you have to remember, this is like, you know, the Eddie Murphy trading places kind of days, right. You know, before your time where you were in the floor screaming and yelling and all that. And it was very primal. And the saying on the floor used to be that, you know, if you, if you break even your first year, you'll have a future, right. And I thought that was a terrible goal. Like, because if you, if you, if you have a goal of, of 
breaking even, you're probably going to break even, right? So I set a goal of of making $200,000 profit trading the first year. And that seemed very daunting, especially because that is an intimidating place. Like you go down there and people just want to eat their young there, right? Like I am the competition. Like you said, it's a zero sum game. I was mercilessly made fun of. I was super skinny at the time. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, like I was very, very, very much driven to make this work because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but I was fascinated by derivatives and the process and the sort of primal nature of, of the game that was being played there. And $200,000 sounds insurmountable, but then you break it down and you say, well, there's 250 trading days a year. That's like $800 roughly a day. And if every tick, which is like the minimum fluctuation is $12 and 50 cents, I need to make about 60 of those a day. And in the course of eight hours, that only means I need to make like one or two winning single tick trades per hour. That seems very doable. And indeed I did it, you know? Um, and it was very, very intimidating and very difficult. But in my first year I made, I made just about $200,000 trading and I had a, a backer. So he got 40% of that or something like that. Um, but I made a very good living um, in my first year of trading and so immediately, like, as I recognized that that was coming, I was like, oh, I need to reset this goal. And I, I went for 4X that the following year. Now, again, sounds like a lot, but it's not. It's the same thing. All I have to do is four times the size on any given trade. So instead of doing one contract at a time, you do five at a time, but do the exact same thing. So where people break down is that they start thinking about the, the money being like, a lot or something. And it always frustrates me. Another thing that frustrates me, a lot of things are frustrating me is that like, you know, in public discourse is that like people want to drag down the billionaires or something like that. Right. Like Bezos, like going to space, like, or, or Branson or whatever. And, and what you have to look at is the interviews of him 25, 30 years ago. And he's tuned into the internet in 1995 so much so that he quits a very lucrative job and takes, you know, the proverbial like door to make a desk, you know, off the wall because he's saving money. He's got his one little warehouse in Seattle. And yeah, it's really e easy to go like, oh, this guy's evil now or whatever. But like that was a 30 plus year thing where he took those little incremental steps along the way. Now you can argue about, you know, whether a guy should have $200 billion or whether, but that wealth was not taken from someone else yeah. an entirely new. It is not a zero sum game like derivatives. And so like he didn't take that from either his employees or from us or from anywhere else. It was created out of whole cloth. It was a brand new thing. So, you know, there are things that Amazon has done that I disagree with in terms of labor practice or whatnot. And fine, let's argue that, but you can't argue that, he took money from anyone else. Yeah, it's a really good point. There, there's, I think there's a funny, um, I think it was 60 Minutes, like in 2001, he was already a billionaire and they're doing the piece and he's driving this like Toyota Corolla from yeah, like the early 90s. Like, yeah. like look, I, so here's the other thing is that most people who shout about the billionaires don't know any. Yeah. I probably know, I don't even, I've never counted. I'm guessing I know a dozen to 20 people who are worth a billion dollars or more. 
every one of them is not sitting, none of them are sitting on a yacht somewhere traveling around doing stupid shit. They all get up early and work their asses off and are interested in doing interesting things and creating things and whatnot. And that's how they got their money. And what people don't get is that the money was a byproduct of those things. It is, I don't know one of those people who their goal was, I'm going to make and hoard a billion dollars. What they said is that I'm going to make some amazing stuff that's going to empower a lot of people. And I remember one of the arguments, I was a philosophy major and I was taking a business ethics class and we were studying and reading Marxism, which a lot of folks who claim to be Marxists actually probably haven't done. And, you know, we kind of said like, well, what if we reset everybody to exactly the same level tomorrow? Like everybody starts off exactly the same and you'd have this wonderful equality and whatnot. And then Michael Jordan comes out of retirement to play basketball and 50,000 people show up and they each want to give two of their dollars to see him play. All of a sudden, Michael's got a hundred grand and he can do that every day. So Michael Jordan, this is at the time, you know, he was the you know, biggest basketball player. Michael Jordan is going to be very unequal very quickly and not because of anything other than the fact that he is incredibly driven to be that skilled. And everyone's willing to take a tiny little piece of what they've got and give it to that person. And so even within a Chinese system or a Russian system, that happens. It happens sort of naturally. And so it's, it's a tricky thing to figure out the right balance for that. But I also think it's pretty inevitable that certain people are just highly driven to become exceptional at what they do. So speaking about being highly driven, I, I want to go back to your early days as a devoted trader and something you did, which I, I just, I have to unpack and figure out from you where you essentially like <laughs> fake your resume in the wrong direction and end up taking five yeah, yeah. bucks to be a runner. Like, w- like what's going through your head, young Nick Kikonis? Well, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to grow up with a, you know, a dad who, who worked really hard. Um, served in both the army and the navy, drafted into both, which is crazy. And um, you know, he was part of the Greek community in Chicago. That you know, they he didn't go to college. His dad died when he was really young. He worked at a grocery store from a young age. And I knew a bunch of like Greek second cousins and whatnot that were doing really, really well financially with small businesses ownership. You know, we're talking about like the Greek hot dog stand kind of thing. Um, And I had a second or third cousin that was a really, really good beer and hot dog sales guy in the summers during college, during his college years at Wrigley Field. And he made a ton of money, all cash, (laughs) you know. And I remember hearing about how much money he made. And I, I don't know the number. I just remember that it was more than my buddies who were going to Goldman Sachs were making out of Colgate. And that was his like four month summer job, you know? And I just went like, wow, like, yeah, Goldman Sachs is more prestigious. And it's almost like if you make it through the hazing essentially of your first five years there, you're almost guaranteed to make a very good living. It's like being a dentist or something like that. Like, like you may not like digging in people's mouths, but you're for sure going to make four or $500,000 a year. Right. Like, I don't know anyone who wakes up. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but like you show me a 25 year old who's like, yeah, I love mouths. Right. You know, it's like, no, they just want a very secure 
secure livelihood. And of course everyone needs a dentist. So like, that's probably some of the, what's going on there. But when I got out of school, I'd gotten into a joint JD PhD program at Penn and everyone was encouraging me. And this is kind of the, the false currency of elite institutions. And believe me, I've, I've poked at my alma mater for this, um, where the way that they measure themselves is like the average graduates earnings five years out and the number of people that graduate as a percentage and the number of people that get employment right away and all of that, which I get, I totally understand that. But for me, I was like, okay, well, I've got this wonderful degree. It's taught me how to think. I, I feel like I've gotten a tremendous amount out of it, but now that I have to actually make money, the best way to make money is not become a lawyer. That's the best way to minimize risk. And I had no interest in minimizing the risk because all of my dad didn't have a choice to minimize risk. And so I was basically looking to maximize risk at a young age when you can afford to live on ramen and, you know, like have a little one bedroom and, and like not have any of the trap. Like you don't need much when you're 22. You know, you just get out of a dorm room why do I want to take a job with Goldman Sachs and then eat shit for five years so that I can sell bonds, you know? And so for me, I was like the trading floor was the kind of place where it seemed like the riskiest thing to do, you know, like it was like, I knew people doing really, really well there financially. They didn't seem that highly educated. So it seemed doable. That's, that was a, like an actual doable thing. Um, and then in order to get down on the floor there, what did I do? Well, I started interviewing the Societe Generale and Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and all that, because that was the pathways that I was pointed to, to get down to a trading floor. And I had done well enough academically. I was, you know, Phi Beta Kappa, all that. I'd always get the interview. I would do well in the psych tests. I would do well in the math tests. I would do well in the logic tests. I would get down to the final interview and I would be like, well, what do you what kind of job am I applying for? And they said, well, we don't know yet, essentially, but you're coming into this prestigious firm and we're going to find the best place for you. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to, I want to get down on the trading floor and I want to be a trader. And they said, well, sure. You're going to go through this year and a half, two year program and you might end up there, but you might end up being a better bond salesman. And I was just like, okay, well, I, this is the wrong path, but I didn't know the right path to take. So I went to try to just apply for a job as a clerk on the trading floor, just so I could see what it was actually like. And when I would apply to the clearing firms, you know, they're kind of the middlemen between every trade. Um, being a clerk back then, a yellow coat just meant that you held up an order and ran it to the pit. It was a completely unskilled job. So I would, I literally went there with resumes, paper, and like knocked on doors and handed them out. And I mean, finally, one guy told me the reason you're not getting a callback is because you're hugely overqualified. You should go talk to Goldman Sachs, you know? And so I was just like, oh, I got to get rid of all my academic achievements. <laughs> so I just made, I just got rid of everything good on my resume and went there and took a $5 and 35 cent an hour job. Like what's, what's the thinking? Like, I, I would love to know how you're projecting in the future. Like, do, do you see? Like All I a- knew was that I couldn't like, you have to get a foot in the door. Yeah. 
And the foot in the door I wanted was not a traditional one. I wanted to go down there and figure out what was happening down there. I just wanted to be in the environment and look around. It's like, it's like becoming a bat boy and just to figure out like, you know, what do managers do in baseball anyway? Right. Or, 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 you know, a water boy. So you can watch the NBA from on the floor. All I wanted to do is get up close and I couldn't, you know? And so this was tedious, mind numbing, stupid work. But, well, I worked my way up from runner to clerk to phone clerk in about two and a half months, which normally takes like a year and a half. But they were just like, oh, you're you're really smart. And finally, once I was in there, I told I told the guy who was my boss what I did. And he was just giggling like he thought that was funny as hell. And um, my peer group were literally drug dealers. And I'm not saying that like. Like in any negative way, like they dealt drugs, they took jobs down there from the gangs to deal Coke to a bunch of Coke to adult traders. That's flat out like who three of the four of my literal peer group was. I, I love mind blowing, right? No, 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 no. I, this, this is great. Yeah, right. I, I, I love the analogy of the bat boy. So like, I'm wondering, I mean, obviously like elite education, there, there's so much in theory you can read about. What, what do you have to just fully live and experience then like, what's the lesson you got out of there that can only happen if yeah, you're actually I mean, in the arena? Look, I, I, I don't even like for the restaurants that I own now, no one kind of that works for us probably knows what I do day to day. But when Alinea first opened and Grant got sick, I went in there and polished glasses. Like you have to do the work that is going on in your business. And so for me, going down on the trading floor and seeing how the clerks worked, seeing how the runners worked, meeting dozens of traders, like then I could like, when it was downtime, there's a lot of slow times there. Like there's a lot of times where nothing's going on. It's not all screaming eight hours a day, every day. So I started like going like, oh, that guy looks interesting. And I would literally just poke him and start talking to him, saying like, how did you get to be a trader? You seem like you're a good one. Like what's going on here? And that was invaluable. Like you, you have to meet the players, so to speak. So how do you meet the players? Well, if you're a bat boy, you probably meet all the players and you don't show up day one going, you know, Hey, Mr. Like, you know, a list player, like what? But over time you, you establish some sort of rapport and respect from them. And then you can start asking questions. And that's all I did. You know, it's like, I, I finally, um, six months in, I was really concerned that it was a dumb decision. And then um, I met I met a trader that was super geeky, seemed different than the other guys, was trading options for his own account, was trading very small, and um, had gone to the University of Chicago, studied math. Like he just seemed different than, you know, more intellectual, a little different than the other guys. And when I finally identified him, I was like, I want to work for you. And he was like, Oh, I just hired a clerk two weeks ago. I don't, I don't need one. And I was like, I would pay to work for you, literally. Like, I'll pay you $500 a week to work for you. And he was like, why? So I explained everything I just explained. And he was like, oh, wow, that's really weird. Okay, well, you don't have to pay me. I'll pay you 400 bucks a week. And then I got to stand next to this guy and learn options theory. And he was a really good teacher. And when it was downtime, I'd go, you know, like having the computer upstairs is stupid. We need to get a computer down here. We need better software. You're like, the software sucks. So like it became this mutual thing where I was like highly energized by learning this very esoteric stuff 
um, hands-on said, yeah, my goal is to get down here and be a trader within a year. I got six months left, man. Like I need a full download. And he's like, no, no one does that in six months. And I'm like, I'm going to do that in six months. And so he's like, he, he, to his credit, like he was like, okay, like, you know, if you want it in six months, here's everything that we're going to have to do. And um, he ended up becoming one of the largest or the largest independent bond traders in the world. Um, and, you know, a couple of years later, after I started trading, I, I, he offered me a partnership. I didn't really like the terms. I kind of wanted to go out on my own. So I did. Um, but I feel a huge sense of, of debt to him even now, even though we don't, we don't chat much or anything like that. Like we've gone in totally different directions, but Frank Serino, if you're out there, um, thank you. He was a great mentor, a great dude. You become so much clearer with that story. Like this is, this is why I love talking with you, Nick, you are unique. You're different the way you approach things. And so you actively seeking out someone that you go, you know what, this guy's doing something a little bit different. I'm wondering, have you thought about this, like just unique blend where you're, you're highly analytical, data-driven, logical, but then you've got this like beautiful artist, creative nature. And like, you perfectly blended the two. I I guess for me, I don't like people, like you go on these things and people want to say that and stuff, but you also have to know is that like I floundered around for a year or two before I figured out how to get down on the floor. Like these things all seem like neat little packages, but meanwhile, my now wife, then, then girlfriend, fiance, was working at, at Citibank to enable me to, to take these risks. So like in, in, in hindsight, it looks like a neat package, but what people really need to understand is that some of these things were done out of sense of like frustration, desperation, all those things. They sound like, ah, like you decided one day to get, you know, fake your resume in the wrong direction. But what you have to remember is that like, that was like a four or six month process of failure and trying to figure out like, why is, why am I getting offers from Merrill Lynch, but I can't get a shitty job. Like I want the shitty job. Now I guess the wanting the bad job is the thing that seems novel. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I go back over and over again to Paul Graham has an essay, which I read long after all of this called how to do what you love. And any, I get from podcasts like this, people email me, and they say, I would like some life advice, you know, or I'm 23 years old now and I want to take similar risks. And I send them that Paul Graham essay because it's better than anything I can articulate. And in there, what he says is that prestige is false currency. Um, you know, the most interesting businesses to me are often the least prestigious, you know. And so I, I guess because the reason I, I mentioned my dad is like my dad owned a temporary labor office which was in a terrible part of Chicago because it had to be because that's where people wanted temporary labor. And I remember this juxtaposition of like going to an IV covered school in upstate New York and studying philosophy and, and all that. And then going back in the summer and seeing my dad get up at four in the morning and go to work. But he was the guy who was at my basketball games when I was in high school at three in the afternoon, but the dentists weren't. And by the way, he was making twice as much as a dentist and no one knew because he's a little Greek guy and everyone just assumed that he's not very bright, you know? And so I just, I internalized that prestige was bullshit very early on. And that was, I mean, if anything, you know, I, I look at a lot of businesses now and the people that I like to invest in, like, like the Maui Nui Venison, amazing business person, amazing business, ecolo- you know, positive ecological impact, 
I don't think there's anybody in college right now who's going, you know, oh yeah, like I'm going to be out there at three in the morning shooting axis deer. So I look at that and like, does he care about prestige at all? No, he's got a mission, you know, and um, that that's everything. That's why it seems novel, I guess. I, I don't know. I almost feel like it, it doesn't seem so neat, like on the surface it might, but then like you start uncovering some of the layers to you and it's like, oh no, 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 you were grinding it out and you were taking extreme risk and you were working your ass off. We're like, I don't know. It's just like, it, it, yeah. it, it, I mean, it, the last year, the last year has taken a real toll, even though the outcomes were great because when COVID hit, I was basically like, okay, I'm, I, we don't have any restaurants anymore. The restaurants are going to get shut in two weeks. And talk at the time was doing reservations and experiences, prepaid experiences for restaurants. And they're all about to shut. So both of the businesses at once were going to go to zero. And that's what I had worked on for the last 17, well, at the time, 15 years. And instead of like, there was a moment where I went, Oh God, this is overwhelming. Like I am in the wrong industry for this. And then I, I remember the moment I was sitting in my office at home and I just went, well, time to suck it up again. Like, you know, what can we be doing to take advantage of this in the Churchillian sort of way? Right. You know, like never waste a good crisis. Right. Exactly. And I remember that a very, very, very famous chef called me and they were going to have to process a lot of refunds and like, it was just a cluster, right? You know, it's like, there's a lot of this counterparty risk that talk had all this stuff. And by then I had fired myself up going, you have no idea. Like there's going to be like 2% of the people in this whole industry that think new shit up right now. And you're complaining to me like, and I quoted that Churchill quote to him and he was offended by it. Like he was genuinely offended. And I said, you know, he's like, this is a real crisis. And I said, absolutely. It's terrible. Can you shut it off? You can't shut it off. Okay. What are you going to do about it? Stop, stop going on TV and, and saying how terrible everything is and actually fucking do something. Like, I don't like, I, you know, I remember I, my, I, I, <laughs> I sat my wife down and I was like, I was very emotional. And I just said like, this is terrible. All that I'm going to need a very wide berth for the next year. Like I'm going to need some latitude and I'm going to kind of disappear for a while. And she said, you already have more latitude than any husband I know. Like, you know, like I'm like, I need even more, you know? And what was, what was really interesting is that like, like six or seven months in, she came up and she was just like, holy shit, like you killed this. And it was really good. You know, I mean, it was really tough, but it was really good. A few things I, I want to dive a little bit deeper on. First, that overwhelm factor. I, I, I kind of want to know like the, the progression of that. How long does that last? And is it just like a flip of the switch? Well, I think it lasts less every time once you've gone through it. A bunch, just muscle right? memory? More like, well, I, I could go through the five stages and spread that out over <laughs> like, you know, eight months or whatever, right? Or I could just get over myself and get to work. Love it. So, you know, when I mentioned the counterparty risk at the time that COVID hit, and we're talking about weeks before um, 
any shutdowns happened or whatnot. Well, I mean, that, that's because you're, you're like highly attuned to this type of stuff. You, you sense changes in, in markets, I'm, I'm assuming. And so you can Yeah, and again, because you've seen it, you know, you've seen these crises, you know, all of the train wrecks happen in slow motion. Hmm. <laughs> like, oh, wait. It's such a good line, yeah. There was plenty of, yeah. there are plenty of time, there is plenty of time in a way to hedge your positions and get out. But people see the crisis. And instead of going like, wow, this is serious. This is bad. Most people at first just want to go, ah, it probably won't happen. So if something has a 5 or 10% chance of happening, but it is catastrophic, you have to turn 100% of your attention to that 5% or 10%. And so that's what, that's what I did. Like when, when Seattle COVID numbers came up, I talked to an, a doctor that I knew and who was a very bright, broadly red doctor. And he was like, yeah, it's a pretty low risk, but it's non-zero. It's probably 15% that this goes nationwide if they don't do something. And it doesn't appear that they're going to do anything about it. And I went like, wow, 15%. That's a lot more than I thought. Like that's, that might be everything. So at that moment, I, I went, I woke up the next day. I was thinking all about the Alinea group and the restaurants and what we need to do to protect our staff and our customers and how we continue on and all that. And then I went, oh my God, there's $30 million of prepaid reservations that we've sent out to restaurants. And they're going to have to return all that money. And I don't know if they have it. And there was an email that I sent to our CFO when we decided to send out like almost like Kickstarter where you send out the money before the product's delivered back then, not now, we can't do that anymore. Um, I sent an email where he was saying, we don't want to take that risk. Like we have to hold the money back and all that. I said, this is a huge benefit to, to restaurants and wineries. We need to send them the money ahead. And that will be a differentiating feature of talk. And all of a sudden I woke up. Well, I sent him an email at the time because he's very conservative. And I said, look, it's not like every restaurant in America could close at once. We're going to have some restaurant close sometime and we're going to lose $100,000 or $200,000. That's inevitable. But it's not like 5,000 restaurants are all going to close at once. And all of a sudden I woke up and I went, oh my God, 5,000 restaurants are all going to close at once. And we have 30 some million dollars that's going to vaporize if they can't do their refunds. So I called him up, Steve Bernanke is his name. And I said, Steve, we have a lot of counterparty risk. And you could almost like hear the silence where he was like, yeah, what do you think I've been thinking about for the last 24 hours, you know? <laughs> and I was like, okay, we need, we need to measure this. And then we need to figure out what, like, we just need to stack rank our risk. You know, it's the 80, 20 rule, the, you know, 80% of your risk is probably 20% of your clients. Let's figure out those 20%. Let's start calling them personally. Let's get the refunds. Let's get some engineering work done so we can batch process refund. And within a week, we had solved that problem. And our total loss on that $30 million was $8,200, $8,200. Jeez. Yeah. But at the time I didn't know that. So like you say like, like, you know, what, how does that happen and in, in what sort of time frame and all that? And the answer is like, I woke up, realized I had a serious problem or a potential serious problem. This is before shutdowns, easier to do before yeah. like the total crisis hits and immediately instead of going, this is, an, we're going to be shut. We're going to go out of business. You instead go, this is an existential risk. How do I figure it out? 
And we did. We did so very, very quickly. I'm just trying to think about like the past year, of course, it's been a crazy year for everyone, but just like the ups, the downs, um, even, even, even talk becoming acquired, like, how do you encapsulate this past year? There's a bit of a cliche that some people have said that it accelerated natural trends, you know, like retail online commerce went up, it was going up whatever, three or 4% a year. And it, it got to like 20%. And then all of a sudden during COVID, it went to 35% a year. And people are like, oh, it'll revert. And it's like, no, probably not. Cause it was going to get to 35% anyway. Um, for me personally, it accelerated my own path as well. Um, partly because I did a bunch of stuff that just got stuff done that accelerated all of those things you mentioned into a year instead of over a course of four or five years because people had to make decisions, you know? Um, and then also like for me personally, man, it was, it was tiring. I'm old now. I can't do, I can't run at the pace I used to run at when I was, when I was a 25 year old trader, you know? Um, you know, but I, but I had that muscle memory of doing it. Like it was, it was interesting to get into that mindset and mode of working really, really fast. You didn't have time to test the batch refund thing. Like normally we go through QR, you know, quality control testing and, and, and we're going to roll out a, a new software product to one or two clients so that they can test it in the wild. They're going to get feedback to us and our account management team and all that. And this was like, Hey, is the batch refund thing ready? Yeah, we got something. Hit go. And boy, I I dig that. <laughs> you know, the downside of running a, a larger company and, and now a publicly traded subsidiary of, of Squarespace, which has been wonderful, um, is that like that pace of like, yeah, let's give it a shot, see what happens. You can't really do that, right? Like that'd be irresponsible. So, but I miss that. And I, I, that was kind of an interesting part of things, but it's tiring and scary. I'm wondering that, I mean, you said that's, that's kind of irresponsible. I think about this is like, those, those are major decisions of consequence. Like, could you speed that up in your own progression, doing things like that earlier, just so that muscle memory is like highly condensed in, in these rapid, rapid, like iterative feedback cycles? I think, yeah. I mean, look, I think you have to know when to do that and when not to do it. Right. And so when you have something that's an existential risk or an asymmetric risk or an opportunity where the window is closing very quickly for whatever reason, um, you have to be willing to, to jump at it. And so like, you know, like every rule, there's an exception to the rules. Like I, I, you know, I, I look at people who are rigid rule followers and I always, I never relate to them right there with you and and to me and to me that that i i don't mean ethical ethical or moral rules either right like i'm talking about like rules that are more tradition than rule like for no good reason so like like i think that sometimes like if i'm talking to a cfo or a finance person or something like that at a company and i'm i'm talking to the the marketing team and I'm telling them you have to be aggressive and crazy and take risks. And if you blow it, you blow it. Don't worry about it. And the CFO is sitting there going like, I, I don't want any part of this guy. And I'm like, dude, I'm not talking to you. You're the CFO. Of course we're going to do the accounting down to the penny. Like I'm not telling you to be unethical or take risks with the accounting. Of course not. Like that, that'd be stupid. 
but that's not marketing. Like you should not be talking to the marketing department and telling them to, to not take risks or the design development department or something like that. So like, that's really, you have to like, I don't want my heart surgeon taking undue risk on me. Right. <laughs> or the dentist or whatever. Right. Those are just different roles. But when you're building a business or building, you know, in my mind, your own career, if you don't take risk, you know exactly where you're going to end up. Yeah. You mentioned this past year, just like such a steep learning curve, even about yourself, like just being able to step back, analyze for a bit. I mean, you had to do so much. Where do you think your skills are best? Like, where is Nick Kikonis? Like just the top 99.999% of people. Oh, I don't want to say, I don't, you know, I, I have a, a unique ability to look across, across disciplines and, and have, you know, there's some people that are very narrow and miles deep and I'm kind of shallow and, and miles wide. So I can often see something that someone's doing and go, oh, that's just like this. And like people are always amazed, like, well, you studied philosophy and then you became finance and then you ran restaurants, and then software. Like that's a really weird progression. And I'm like, no, 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 no. These are all the same things. Like to me, they all seem very, very related. What do you mean by that? And uh, well, I, I, I think that, you know, Look, derivatives trading is about probability and statistics, right? Booking a restaurant is about probability and statistics. Building software is about probability and statistics. And probability statistics is based off of the fundamentals of logic and math. And when I was in college studying philosophy, which people you know think like you know Descartes or you know I think therefore I am or whatever, what what they're trying to get at is what are the fundamental first principles of thought or language or logic or math. So if you read Bertrand Russell or Wittgenstein, it, if I showed you some early Wittgenstein, it's symbolic logic. It looks like math. It doesn't look like, you know, he'll say, you know, a couple lines and then he'll prove it with axioms that were written out in symbolic logic. So studying philosophy and studying derivatives, perfect fit. That, like I got down there and once I started, like, once I started understanding how options relate to each other, I was mesmerized because you have all these contingent probabilities based off of a single origin. And then you have layers of derivatives in the mathematical sense. And I would go like, Oh my God, this, this goes miles deep. Like there's curves upon curves and everything's logarithmic and nonlinear. And like, it was just really exciting to see it all. And then you start building software and it's the same thing. So is it that ability the same thing. To, to spot those commonalities? I I don't, yeah, I, I think so. And I also think that like, like I hate when I see, when I hear, like, I remember there was a governor saying, we should get rid of all humanities studies and just have our, our students study STEM. You know, now I am obviously pro-science <laughs> and engineering and, and, and all of that. And I think the U.S. lags in, in that. But if you don't know how to apply those things, if you don't have people going, well, where in humanity should we be applying these resources and this engineering and whatnot, you, you do not, you have nothing. So you need both. And I think that the people that I'm most fascinated by, which by the way, are the people that both get vilified and held up as, you know, like if you listen to old Steve Jobs interviews, he went to design school, dropped acid and dropped out. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but he was smart enough. He wasn't an engineer, but he was smart enough to understand engineering and, and understand that like, Hey, music can be on your phone. Like that seems like obvious now. It seemed very cool and weird when he announced it. And, you know, but he was also vilified, you know, terrible leader, demanding all of that, you know, like probably wouldn't cut it nowadays. And I look at people like that and I just go like, oh yeah, like they didn't study just STEM or just humanities. They did both. You have to do both. You, you mentioned jobs. I'm wondering who, who are those thinkers that you're just like, I, I would just love to just like nerd out with for a few hours, really expand my thinking. Oh, I mean, they're all philosophers for me. You know, I, I don't read business books ever. Um, I mean, I have read some business books, but I, I don't, there's not many of them, but like, you know, they're all dead. AJ Ayer, Russell Wittgenstein. I did get to meet Marie Gelman, who um, I had dinner with a couple of times who discovered the quark. And um, right now I'm, I'm friends with Richard Thaler who won the Nobel prize in economics. What's fascinating about Thaler and Gelman who won Nobel prize in physics and all that is that you meet a Nobel prize winner and you expect everything out of their mouth to be a work of genius, right? Like it just, like if you, when you're growing up, you're like, I will never meet anybody who, who won a Nobel prize. And I remember that I had read um, one of uh, Gelman's, Dr. Gelman's um, uh, books, which all of a sudden the name's escaping me. It's called like the tiger and the something. Anyway, quirk, quirk and the tiger, something like that. Jaguar, quirk and the jaguar. That's it. Got a cat in there somewhere. So, um, and finding it wonderful and found out like after I met him, like he was bananas, crazy and fun. I got out of that dinner party. and was so frustrated by the other people there that I sold my house and moved out of the neighborhood for real. Cause I was like, I don't want my kids growing up amongst these people because they were bigoted towards him. Like, because he kind of had this thick Jewish accent. I mean, but meanwhile, I was going like, this man discovered the quark, won the Nobel prize, did this work when he was in his twenties, like many mathematicians do, they do amazing work, you know, early on in their life. And I have this opportunity here to chat with him and to, to, to learn about him. And all he wanted to talk about was the Santa Fe Institute, global warming. This is 20 years ago. And um, Cormac McCarthy, who was his, his office mate, the writer, the great writer. So he just wanted to talk about literature. And I was just going like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And then when, when I published um, or published or wrote a blog about, about the predecessor to talk and said, you know, dynamic and variable timing for prime time slotted businesses is the norm and whatnot. Richard Thaler started reaching out to me on Twitter, but I had no idea who he was. And finally, someone said, hey, like, this guy's, this guy's the real deal. Like, you need to, you need to respond to him. And we went golfing and we went out there and we were talking about football probabilities. Now, neither of us is like crazy into football, but he was basically like the decision-making of coaches is based on minimizing their personal liability of getting fired, not winning the games. And I was like, yes, of course, except for that guy in high school who had his team do four downs every time, no matter where they were on the field. And he knew all about that, of course. And we became great friends and he became an investor and advisor to talk. And, you know, the thing I learned from interacting with those people 
is that if you did get a chance to talk to Wittgenstein or Plato, probably, they'd probably want to talk about their dinner. <laughs> you know, like it's not like you're writing, you know, you're not writing the, the manifesto every day. You're living and learning and being human. And, um, and all of these people that I've met and others um, are multifaceted individuals, which is the most fascinating thing to me. And I think the thing that our leaders miss the most, you know, even within cabinet positions and the administrations and whatnot, instead of hiring generalists, they hire high, highly regarded specialists. Mm -hmm. And um, that to me is a very tricky siloed approach to the world. Yeah, I was even just coming across, this is a sports article, um, a re research project, and it was around the, the best athletes long-term actually start out um, as generalists and then focus later. And they, they develop those, the, that foundation on those broad skills. Speaking of like just unique things that, that you go deep on, I know you put a ton of thought into the design of your kitchen. I love design. I love cooking. I'm wondering- Oh, no, no, no. But we need to pause there. Credit to my wife. I did almost nothing for my kitchen. <laughs> so let's just be very clear. Like I'm going to point to this part of this tape. Dagmara Kakonis designed 95% of that kitchen. I did the sink and the, and the, and the floor, but not much else. And the stove, not much else. But that stove, doesn't that cook at double, double the temperature of like any no, normal range? No, no. It's, it's a wonderful La Cornue, which is a great, great, great product. And I worked with them to do some cool stuff for it. Um, it's the stove is kind of a normal stove. Everything is a little bit different and better. Um, but most of that does accrue to my wife. I, I will say that like the, the reason I say, mentioned the sink is because a, a lot of sinks have two compartments. And the reason that they have two compartments, if you have a bigger sink in your house is because one's for the sudsy water and one's for the rinse. Now I don't know about you, but I don't hand wash dishes anymore because we have dishwashers, but I do wash pans. And the way I do is I just put a little soap in there and I scrub them down and then I just dry them right away, right? Yeah. Well, those pans don't fit in the, in the sinks that have the two compartments. So that was something that was designed in the 1950s or earlier. And so I was just like, I want the biggest possible sink, single compartment. And I kept wanting it. I mean, I think it's 48 inches wide, it's huge. So I want to be able to put big stock pots in there and all that. And that's because we have dishwashers now. Like, why do we have two compartment sinks? It's dumb. So we did go to that level of detail, but it's really true that my wife did 99% of it. What, what's the favorite thing, and we can give complete credit here to your wife, that got installed that just- Yeah, I can't, this is easy. Um, so we did a sink that mounts a sous vide immersion circulator. And the sink is like a bar size sink and there's a little piece of metal welded on so that you can drop in a poly science immersion circulator. And the beauty of that is if you're using a pot or a cambro or something like that to do immersion circulation, you then have to clean all of that and all that. But the beauty of sous vide is like you can fill up the sink, it's insulated and you can just mount, it's a normal sink. It works as, you know, normally all the rest of the time. But then we can mount and just drop cryovax proteins or, or vegetables in there, and we can just use it as a sous vide immersion circulator. So that's very efficient. That was her idea. I honestly can't believe that no sink manufacturer is offering that. It's just like if you're a sink manufacturer and you're listening to this, 
sous vide sink. Use it all the time. Super simple. When you want to clean up, you just pull the drain and it drains up. Yeah, no, I love it. Back back to originality of thought there. Uh, I know we're going to wrap up here in a couple, but I'm wondering, I mean, just such a unique year, such a unique just trajectory all around. Have you started like deconstructing and just distilling down some of the lessons? I know you love writing. I'm just wondering if any of that is coming to paper. No, I, I haven't had time to write. And honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, um, I'm trying to figure out my next set of goals. As I said, things accelerated. So four years or five years went into one. And so I need to, to recalibrate what my goals are for the next 10 years. And I, I'm thinking about that now. Um, I, I, I don't know what those are yet. Um, and I really haven't had time to properly distill all of that. Um, I will say that I do love writing and I've got three outlines for books, all fiction. And one of them, I have about a hundred pages written. Uh, I haven't worked on it in a little while, but that's something I, I do want to do. Um, and will do, you know, if I live long enough and, um, but I also have to, I have a ton of responsibilities and we're not out of this yet. You know, like it's still the restaurants and the economy are, are, in all sorts of turmoil right now across the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not out of COVID yet by any means. Yeah. Say my wife and I are going out to dinner in 10 years. What's that going to look like? How different from today? I, I have no idea. No. <laughs> like it's, I, I mean, there's not, it's impossible to know. 10 years is a long time. Um, the answer mostly is not very different. I think at like the low end, everything will get automated right down to the cooking. You know, so like if you're doing, going to a QSR in the future, why are humans flipping burgers at this point? Like shouldn't happen. It's not, you know, like those jobs are going to go away. Um, and that also means that ordering will be digital and payment will be digital and, you know, payment on egress, even in fancy restaurants will be digital. It is stupid that anyone hands you a check still. There's a lot of you know inefficiencies around that. Ten minutes extra per table taken out over the course of a year is a lot, um, and we all have that frustration of trying to flag down a waiter and then give him a piece of plastic. It's all stupid. Like that's going to go away. The reason that's there is because there's inherent friction in the credit card business. The credit cards just want to charge more, and they can they can do so right now with card not present transactions. So if you do a digital transaction, even with biometric data, they get an extra 0.8% typically on average. So like the reason you can't go into a restaurant and just pay with Apple pay has nothing to do with Apple pay or, or anything like that it has to do with all the POS systems and credit card wanting to keep the old stuff installed. So they can charge the restaurants more. So that'll go away. But the actual experience of having a great meal and celebrating your life with your friends, that's human. That's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. You know who you remind me of is uh, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld. He, he's got this great oh, line. really? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he, he, he talks about it. He just walks around the world and just sees, and he gets frustrated by so many things. And he sees like how things are yeah, done. Yeah, because I'm turning into a crotchety <laughs> old dude. Like I, I watch, I watch like, you know, I watch, uh, you know, Larry David on some of those things. And like the internal dialogue isn't far off of that at this point, you know? No, I <laughs> love why that. that show is so good. I oh. think that's a lot of people's internal dialogue. I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry David, yeah, I, I would love to have him on. But but Nick, I, I want to know, so much that, that you've experienced, so much that you've learned, if you were going to leave your kids with a gift, this could be mindset, skill, or anything like that, what would you love leaving them with? Oh, that's easy. Intellectual curiosity. That's it. That's it. That's all we've tried to teach them. 
like people say like, Oh, I want my kids to do this or do that. And the answer is I have no, I want my kids to figure out what they want to do on their own. And I don't have any expectations in that, but the only requirement I have is being intellectually curious. Like if you're not trying to figure stuff out and learn, then you're not really living. I don't think that's part of, that's the most fundamental aspect for me of the human condition. And uh, fortunately my wife did a good job of that too. She raised two great boys and they're both are men, I should say at this point. And they're both very intellectually curious and curious in very different ways. Nick, I love it. You know, you're one of my favorite thinkers. I always love getting to talk with you, learn so much, expand my mind. I want to make sure the listeners can stay connected with you. Obviously, we did round one back on episode 119. Uh, Where can we send them? Where can they stay up to date with what you're doing, what you're working on with Talk, Alinea, all the restaurants? Yeah, I mean, um, you can always go to my Instagram um, which I believe is N Kokonis. I always get confused because it's Twitter's either Nick Kokonis. I think Instagram's N Kokonis. I'll, I'll make you know, sure so we, we have them linked up. Correctly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, Instagram is probably where I, I post stuff up the most. Um, Twitter um, a bit, but less and less. Um, the discourse on there is getting worse and worse, in my opinion. And um, you know, I'm Nick at Talk HQ. People email me. Like I, I there was a guy who emailed me yesterday asking for like you know, how to do like an event for his team to, to, you know, motivate them and, and, you know, do a team building exercise and what works and what doesn't. And I emailed him back instead of like, you know, 45 seconds saying, well, I know nothing about you or your team. So it would be impossible for me to comment. And he wrote back, holy shit, I cannot believe that you replied at all, let alone within a minute. (laughs) So like, my thing is, is like, I still, I like, I like meeting people. I like learning. I like looking at other people's businesses. I, I can't do it for everyone all the time, but you know, I've gotten a couple of cold emails in the last year from doing these podcasts and whatnot, where I'm like, Oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, that's rare. It's like one out of a couple hundred, you know? Um, but what a gift that is to like get that thing in your inbox in the morning and be like, wow, this is really cool. Well, hopefully we send some, uh, some interesting projects your way, but Nick, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Thanks, John. Good to speak with you again. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.